Well, I'm certainly glad we got the money. <laughs> the water's free. Uh, I've been chasing a golf ball around all day long up in Malika Gill. You talk about a little bit of the time, you ought to go up there and watch those guys. It's remarkable what concentration can do. I talk a much better game than I play. Tonight I'd like to talk a little while, if I may, about a little bit at a time. I think it's very important, and I think it's quite apropos of the growth of this group. I don't think any of us uh, started out on our first drunk to get drunk all at once. I, I think perhaps we started off with that one small one just to be a good fellow. Like Helen and uh, the good Chris, uh, I never drank because I liked the flavor, but I did love the effect it produced. <laughs> I liked that. Because I was a big skinny kid and uh, it made me a veritable tiger. <laughs> and it seems that the one or two little drinks on a Saturday night soon blossomed forth into three or four, and a little bit at a time I discovered that I enjoyed this stuff. Yeah. It did things for me that nothing else could do. I happened to be in the furniture business. A more miserable business was never invented. <laughs> and especially now. But it seemed that in the furniture business to people who sell things, you must have a little drink to celebrate an excellent sale. By the same token, you must have the same little drink to drown your sorrows when there are no sales. <laughs> huh? So a little bit at a time, instead of drinking both in celebration and in depression, I drank all the time. <laughs> and the little three quarters of an ounce developed into a big fifth. Well, it wasn't a fifth when I was a young man. Of course, I'm, I'm 50 now. That's a long while ago. But when I was a young man, during Prohibition, we had flasks that were about that long. And I didn't carry a little bit at a time. I carried it all at once, you know, and it hit you right in the shoulder blade. <laughs> you could always tell who had the flask by the way he walked around. <laughs> I liked that. I was a dirty, stinking slob from the word go. I loved that because they'd have to come to me to get a drink. Well, the halcyon days of my youth passed very rapidly, uh... And I often thought sometimes, unfortunately so too, because from the little bit of drinks that we had on Saturdays and on weekends, it developed into this long, steady grind of drinking all the time. So little by little, I developed a persecution complex. Yet, it seems that everyone was after me. My fellow uh, business associates, they said I drank too much. And I was married to a very charming girl, 
and she expected me to bring home money on payday. <laughs> All that silly stuff, you know. Seemed that she would hide the bottle. I belonged to a golf club over in Jersey in those days, and I didn't play much golf, but I spent a lot of time drinking their whiskey there. And it got so bad, and I was just a young fella, that whenever I would go into the 19th hole for a drink, everybody else would move down the other way. Then they asked me to resign. It seemed that I didn't pay my tabs on the first of the month. A miserable bunch of people. <laughs> so a little bit at a time, it began to filter through that I was no longer wanted. And I felt so sorry for Bill Green. So sorry for Green, because I knew I was a wonderful fella. As I would shave in the morning, I'd look in the mirror and I would say, Oh, Bill, you're a dog. <laughs> now, that's a hell of a way to go through life, whether you're an alcoholic or not. <laughs> So then I decided that I must try willpower. Not much willpower, just a little bit. All you have to do to stop drinking is precisely that. Stop. So you turn in your keys and your cards and you go home and you break all the bottles and you profess to all and sundry that you are through with the foul stuff. Your halo is setting tightly on your head I didn't drink Tuesday, and I didn't drink Wednesday, and I didn't drink Thursday. I said to myself, well, there's nothing to this stuff now, so I went out and got drunk on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> this first picture that I'm painting for you, as I said, is in the halcyon days of my youth. Youth is something that... Uh, when you're old enough to know what to do about it, uh, you can't do it anymore anyway. <laughs> George Bernard Shaw said, it's such a wonderful thing, it's too bad they have to waste it on the young. And that is true. I'd been drinking about ten years, and it seemed that my drinking had progressed to the stage now to where I would drink to get sober. You see, you're in this half fog all the time. And I met a bartender friend of mine, and he told me about this little drink in the morning. Oh, he was a lovely fellow. Uh, I, I loved him to vote. He, he, was a, he was a most admirable young man. He gave me this prescription, and I think it was one. As a matter of fact, at that time, it was the panacea to end all pain. You take a jigger of gin, the drop of a white of an egg, and a dash of orange bitters. Now, can you picture this trembling drunk pouring out the drop of a white of an egg? <laughs> well, for a few mornings, I would get down to the bar, and he'd make this concoction for me, and it was wonderful. But it seems a little bit at a time... I dispensed with the egg. I didn't have the bitters handy. 
There were no small glasses, so I drank it right out of the bottle. <laughs> From that point on, started my years of flight. 500 miles down the road, no one knows Bill Green. That's it. I must leave. I sold my business, loaded my car with Canadian Club, and away I went. I didn't stop at 500 miles. I went out to Seattle. And I couldn't go any further because that's the end of the line. And I went into business out there, and in 20 months, I was a banker. I felt awful sorry for Green then because now I had entered into the sick stage. I would get so sick, boys and girls, that when I would get a room in a hotel, I would always get twin beds. One to sleep in, one to puke in. <laughs> you see, I was the high type. I... It took me nine months to get from Seattle back to Newark, New Jersey. I went the long way, by way of San Diego. I would drive a little, drink a little, puke a little. When I got back to Newark, I had $50, a beat-up Oldsmobile, no whiskey. I felt so sorry for myself. No one had had it as miserable as Bill Green. I'd been robbed, lying, cheated. I was living in a very slimy world. And it was all their fault. And I told it to myself regularly, but I was beginning to doubt it a little bit too along this time. <laughs> and I woke up one morning, and the Oldsmobile is gone, and so is the $50, and I'm standing in the middle of my wardrobe. I have a pair of dungarees with a fanny that was out, a blue shirt, and a pair of Stacy Adams shoes with no stocks. And I'm sitting on the end of this bench down there in Lincoln Park, and another bum came along and he says, uh, Oh, Slim! Hey, he says, that's a fine pair of shoes you have there. Well, right away, boys and girls, I could tell you that this fellow knew class when he saw it. <laughs> I like this boy. Yes. And I started to tell him of my former exploits. Well, he seemed to want to concentrate on the shoes. <laughs> In 1939, shoes were bringing 75 cents in pawn. And so we went down and pawned shoes. Two bottles of Sneaky Pete and a pair of canvas relievers. <laughs> this is November. <laughs> Nothing the matter with me. I was up. So you see, a little bit at a time, I'd gone down to the bottom of the barrel. Not all at once. Took 25 years. 25 years and a lot of money and a lot of heartaches and a lot of sorrow. And sitting there on this bench, this bum and I, 
telling each other of the wondrous things we had done. And he loved me and I loved him. And there's no love like one drunken bum for another, believe you me. <laughs> As I looked off into the sky and the snow started to fall, I said, you know, it's getting cold on this bench. And I turned around and the bum was gone. <laughs> that dirty dog took the other bottle with it. <laughs> But it seems in that half-lit world that you live in when you don't have home or substance, there's always plenty of company. Misery loves company. Another guy came along, he says, if you don't get off that bench, you're going to freeze to it and you get pneumonia and you'll die. I always hated to think about dying because I was such a lovely fellow, I, I, I knew they'd miss me on earth. He says, what do you say we get down to salad? Well, I, I didn't know who Sally was, but I knew in my present condition that she wouldn't receive me. I'll tell you that right now. No, he says, we'll get down to the Salvation Army. I want to tell you right now, that's a pretty fine organization. I hope none of you have to resort to it as a means of food and shelter. But they're a wonderful people. They're an understanding people. They have a deep love of God that we that walk around in our daily business world never will understand. They give just for the glory of giving. Wonderful thing. And they took us in. And they gave us a bed. And next morning, they put us out in the bailing room. <laughs> you have never lived until you've been in a Salvation Army bailing room. It's a room of this size. At one end is a big steel maw into which you pour endless miles of newsprint. And at about 800 pounds worth, you step on the trigger, this big thing throws up this bale, and you start all over again. <laughs> and for that labor, we receive 95 cents a week in our room and board. A magnificent sum for one so dirty as I but like all drunks, when they start to sober up, for real, I looked around me and I saw all these other bums and I, gee, I knew I was head and shoulders over those guys. Yes, I'm going to work hard and apply myself and advance myself in this humble surroundings. I worked hard for two weeks out there. And finally, I got promoted to be the helper on the truck. Now you get two bologna sandwiches, a container of cold coffee, and you get out in the open. Three dollars a week. A little bit at a time, I progressed until I became a driver. Utopia. I didn't have to sleep in a dormitory where there were 200 anymore. I slept in a room with absolute privacy. There were only six. <laughs> Living? For that I receive five dollars a week. Well, I don't have to tell you what happened because no drunk can stand prosperity. <laughs> so I ended up back out in the street, only this time I had a pair of shoes. 
and a fellow had given me a size 46 gabardine suit. <laughs> I have since developed into a, uh, a 40 long, but a 46 is, is uh, just a little big for me. I wondered what to do then. I didn't believe in God because I knew God was something that had been cooked up for public consumption. Mass appeal. you got to have something to keep the dummies in check. Nice, vicious thinking. Yeah, this boy is going places. I did. I went from store to store, and from door to door, and slept on the bridge. I drank Bezel, Jirak, Candy, Sneaky, Shoe Polish, anything that had an alcoholic content. Why I didn't die, God only knows. I didn't wash for weeks on end. Just a dirty, filthy, slimy thing that came out from under a flat rock. How God in his wisdom let such a thing live, only he knows. I you have no sense of responsibility, no moral code, no sense of ethics, nothing. Just a filthy, half-dead, stinking thing in a half-dead world. I made the rounds of the city hospital. So finally, one day, on the broad market street, and I ran into my child bride, a lovelier girl, God never endowed with life and breath to breathe in there. Why she stayed with me for over a quarter of a century, I don't know. She said, well, what in the hell happened to you? Why, I... Hello, Ma. I, <laughs> I don't feel well. <laughs> I've been a bad boy. My girl was raised very tenderly and gently in the parochial schools in New Jersey. She had never had to work as a young woman. She ended up slinging hash in a dime hash house to support my daughter and herself. She took me to a hospital. The doctor said, let him try AA. AA? I don't feel well, Ma. I'm sick. You're sick, all right. I stayed there ten days. I promised her I'd go to an AA meeting. Now, I want you to get this mental picture of this maniac that they turned out of this hospital. Here's a guy that's been a drunken, filthy bum for over two years. Here's a man that has descended the social scale from having his own business down to the gutter. Here's a guy that is just hanging on the edge of life who's been given another chance. Yes, I'll go to an AA meeting. No, I just want to get out of the hospital. I want to go home. She takes me home, buys me a $15 suit, and I went out and got a job working for a guy that used to work for me. A nice fellow. An awful nice fellow. Every Wednesday night, 
I'd get down to the meeting. I'd look in. Some guys talking about the grace of God. I'd go on. On the way home, I'd stop and have one, two, three, four. Well, how was the meeting here? Oh, the meeting's all right. It's just not for women. You know, they have a lot of old bums there. I said, next to the speaker's table, they, they, they have another little uh, table, and they've got a bowl of cracked ice on the table, and a bottle of rye, and a bottle of scotch. You see, already in my mind, I'm planning how I can drink a little bit without getting caught. How about that? Is that insanity? I ask you. She said, well, what is all that stuff for? Why? Well, I said, they just put that there to test you. Uh, so when I'd come home and she'd kiss me and tell me that she smelled liquor on my breath, I'd tell her I'd just been testing. <laughs> and I did test a little bit at a time until I came home one night about two o'clock in the morning. Drunk as a goat and twice as stinky. I'm pounding on the door demanding an entrance. I demand my marital rights. <laughs> so be slob, he hasn't done anything for the last five years to contribute to the household. Now he wants in. My wife opened the door and I fell in. <laughs> she said, well, what happened to you? I drew myself up to my full height and I looked down at her. My wife's only about five foot two. I said, madam, they put me to the test and I have failed. <laughs> I don't have to tell you I slept on the street that night, either. <laughs> and so ends the sordid part of my story. Not a pretty thing. I don't enjoy telling it, only for the fact that I'd like to remember the humble earth from whence I sprang. I don't want to ever forget it, because three-quarters of an ounce of whiskey can put me right back here. I'd like to take... A few remaining moments, if I may, and tell you a little bit about the romance of recovery in AA as seen through my eyes. I think it's a beautiful story. Thrills me. I like it. I hope you do. It seems that this particular Sunday, I'm lying flat on our parlor rug. I know I'm going to die because I'm hemorrhaging. When you put your hand up to your ear and you take it away and see blood there, it scares you. When you wipe your eyes and you see blood there, that scares you too. I knew this was it. Oh, God, if I, if I could only try that AA again. My wife says, hey, I don't know. Huh? <laughs> yes, yes, I, I must try AA. That's the only thing for me. And so we called up the Al-Anon Club and knew it. Here's the scene. We're in a corner drugstore. She put the nickel in. Stood right there. Dialed the number. The guy answers the phone. He says, Al-Anon Club Louis speaking. Right away, I knew it was a phony deal. He told me who he was. <laughs> Why, well, I said, this is Mr. G. <laughs> now, is that so? Yes, I said, this is 
beat you. Well, said, where are you? Told him. Did you marry? I said, yeah, I'm not working at it, though. <laughs> Boy said, would you like to come up to the car? Yeah. You got a car? No. Well, get on the bus and come on up. And up we go. And we get up there. And the Al-Anon Club in New Jersey, at that time, in 1945, was a big mausoleum. Thirteen steps leading up into it, bare as a barn. And we walked up, and here was this great big guy, about six foot two, and as broad as a house, smoking a pipe. Hiya, boy, my name is Charles. <laughs> this guy I don't want to talk to. I want to see Louis. <laughs> Well, that's all right. Meet Joe. Joe is a guy about so broad, bronze from the sun to the color of this mahogany table. Seems he was a keeper of the greens at a golf course somewhere. How are you, he says. What is the name? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> well, he says, my name is Joe. This is Charlie. Meet Frank. All right. My name is Bill. Well, I said, fellas, you don't know how sick I am. <laughs> Everybody's laughing. The guy with the pipe is blowing that smoke in my face. It's killing me. <laughs> they take me in to see Louie. This is Louie. This guy needs a drink. No, no. Don't drink. Take him into the coffee bar. We go into the coffee bar. Give him some coffee. More coffee. I want to tell... Shut up. Charles, Joe. Listen, upstairs, meeting upstairs. Joe's on one side, Charlie's on the other. The girls have swept up my child bride and taken her off into another room to tell her the facts of life. Their version, not mine. And over in Jersey, in those days, the girls sat on this side and the boys on that side. And I looked over at my wife and I waved. She looked over at me and waved back. <laughs> They've been talking to her, you see. <laughs> And the meeting starts. I'm George here, Green is there, and Charlie's over here. I say to Charlie, uh, do you have cigarettes? <sighs> Never use them. <laughs> uh, do you have cigarettes? Don't smoke. You see what a vicious fate had done to me? 60,000 people in AA at that time, and I'm sitting between the only two stiffs that don't smoke cigarettes. <laughs> first speaker got up and he started way back at the Boer War. <laughs> and he brought us all the way up to the White Cliffs of Dover. He took us back into the African campaign. <laughs> and I said to Charlie, what the hell does this have to do with me? And he says, shut up. <laughs> the second speaker. Oh, a most poignant story. A fellow had a withered left handicapped from birth. He had a lovely wife and two beautiful children. It seemed that he just purchased a new electric stove a month before Thanksgiving. She had Thanksgiving dinner cooking on this new electric stove. He had one of his cronies ring the front doorbell. He and two of the other fellows, when she went to answer the bell, took stove dinner and all right out of that door. <laughs> oh, it made me feel good. I looked over my wife and said, I never did that. 
We never had a stove that was worth a damn. <laughs> they passed the best. I have nothing that remotely resembles mine. As it goes by, I go... Oh, I felt bad. I said to Charlie, I, I, I must get out of here. I, I can't stand it. He hangs right on me, and this Joe's got... I can't move a muscle. The coffee's beginning to turn over inside, and I, I'm insane. Finally, the last speaker was Stoney. Many of you have heard Stoney years ago. Stoney, with his five-carat diamond ring and his diamond cigarette lighter and his big Cadillac convertible, says, and if you're not working, don't let it bother you. <laughs> I don't have a sous key, and this guy's telling me don't let it bother you. Finally, the meeting is over, and they tell me, take a few pamphlets. I get pamphlets. Uh, buy them the book. The book three nights are a lot of scratch in our family. Buy him the book and make him read it two nights. Yes. All right. Bought him the book. Fellas, I'll see you next Sunday. No. I must have been the only schnook they'd had there in a month. <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow night. Home we go. Me to the rug on the floor? No. Sit up in that chair and read that book. I can't see, Ma. You sit there and read it. What are you going to do? I'm going to make a nice pot of coffee. <laughs> so the night passes. I read a little, drink a little, puke a little. <laughs> Very sad beginning. Finally, somehow, ten days pass in rapid succession. I recognize food for what it is. I begin to feel alive again. And I was sober for the first time in my life because I had a desire for sobriety greater than any other desire I had in my whole life. Yes. Meetings and more meetings and more meetings. Charlie and Joe and I learned to stay away from the pipe and all I... I, I even got another job working for this same guy again. And lo and behold, three months went by. And they gave me this little pin that I've worn from that day to this. And they said, Bill, get up and say a few words. We had about eight people in the group then. And I looked at these eight. Mom, I'm glad to be here. And I said, down. And the applause was tremendous. <laughs> because I was so brief. <laughs> Never happened to me again. <laughs> At six months, I had begun to speak at different meetings. At six months, my halo was killing. My ermine cloak had smothered. I used to look down and wonder what the hell the little people did for a living. I didn't walk in, I swept in. You see, all that I had accomplished in six months was sobriety. I was as dry as dust and just as useless. 
<laughs> One night we went into the club. Jack Sullivan said, Bill, we're short a speaker. Will you say a few words tonight? <coughs> of course. <laughs> Isn't that pitiful? The meeting started and I didn't see Jack anymore. And they called on the first speaker and it wasn't Bill. And they called on the second speaker and the third speaker. And the meeting was over. <laughs> How about that, huh? I brought my heart to the party and nobody asked me to play. That taught me the most important lesson that I have ever learned in my entire life. You know what that is? AA doesn't need Bill Green. But I need AA very desperately, very sincerely, very hungry. Not all at once. Because you can't get it all. Just a little bit at a time. They told me, you got to get out and work a little. You got to give a little. They told me that giving was living. Living was loving. Loving is God. We had an anniversary. And they forgot the cake didn't seem so important anymore. I was very grateful for a year's sobriety. And it seemed that when you go out and you tell the story of AA, in the very haunts to which I had left only such a short time before, you watch a guy come in and get big and strong, you don't have to worry about God because he's sitting right in front of your eyes. You get a warm glow down in your belly sometimes. You try it sometime. Wonderful experience. It seems that you get just a little sobriety. You get just a little humility. Not much, just a little. Not the humility of sackcloth and ashes, but the humility of a humble man that's glad he's alive and concerned. You get just a little tolerance. Not too much, but just enough to sit and listen to the other guy. Somewhere along the line, you stop and wonder if you've forgotten how to pray. I divorced myself from the church when I was 21. I thought about it. I spoke to Father John McNulty about it, now the Monsignor Seton Hall. Don't worry, Bill. You'll develop an awareness of God. How? Why? I don't know. One morning I awoke we had a basement apartment and it faced right on the sidewalk. And outside of our bedroom window there was a little bush about so high. This particular morning there was a little city sparrow taking a bath on this little bush. The weight of this tiny creature's body caused the branch to rise and fall. Isn't that a wonderful thing to see? An awareness of God. Yeah. You're aware of the sunset. You're aware of the blades of grass. You're aware of food cooking in a stove. Odors come easily to your nostrils. You delight in walking down the street and you see someone you know. The first thing that enters your mind is, what is there good I know about that guy? You find 
that big people discuss ideas. Average people discuss things, and little people, they just talk about people. And you realize that if you put this all together, you get a little humility, a little tolerance, a little honesty, a little sincerity, you get a little prayer, you get a lot of AA. Thanks very much.